0: All of us are on a journey of becoming, a complicated journey in pursuit of truth and deeper knowledge of the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that it can be a painful and difficult journey and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson and I too am on a journey of becoming. I am dedicated to inviting you into my journey and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. I want to take an honest look at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today. I want to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. I have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith but it is perhaps one of its greatest allies. I have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And I believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining me on that journey. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh Patterson. And returning back to the show once again is my good friend, Greg. Greg, how's it going,
1: man? Great. Great to see you again, Josh.
0: Yeah. Thanks for for coming back on the show. It's actually, I was looking at it, it's been a lot longer than I thought it had
1: (laughs) the last time you were on we've had a lot of conversations, uh, offline in between. So maybe it doesn't feel as long, but yeah, it's been a while, but that was a great, great first conversation.
0: Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, it's interesting too. I actually, I went back and I listened to that episode, um, again, the other day while I, while I was at work and it was just, it's so interesting one to see like, okay, wow. Like the insight that like, I seemed to have then was nice to like, you know, hear again and be like, whoa, like, that's cool. I, I felt that way. Uh, but also to see <laughs> to see how much of a, a transformation has happened since then, though, or how much growth has happened since then is also really interesting. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, ex- I'm excited that you're back. And just I feel like these are just like going to be like mile marker conversations. Like, we'll just keep having, keep having Greg on the podcast and just all these (laughs) smile markers.
1: (laughs) Right. right. Well, you know, back, you know, pre, pre podcast days, you know, it was journaling. And so I I would go back. I'm I'm not an excellent journaler. I I usually have lots of journals that have about, you know, a quarter way filled and then they're empty. Um, But when I would go back and read those, I was like, oh my gosh, it's wild that I was thinking that then. Uh, And now look how much I've grown. Yeah. Nowadays, yeah, we can just listen back to a podcast or sometimes I'll go back and read old sermons. Uh, you know, start you know, especially if I, I cringe a bit when I look at my sermons from the 90s. Uh, but also appreciate where I was there. But yeah, it's it is it's it's amazing that you begin to watch this this evolutionary process and you can begin to connect the threads and see how you got to where you are today.
0: Mm. Yeah, and it's it's always cool too. I I've found that uh like when I look back like you're saying at at Uh, sermons or uh, things like that that I've recorded previously even the ones that I cringe at I still see like glimpses of things for where I'm at today if that makes sense like you can kind of see like the rumblings or like the beginning (laughs) of some kind of something that that was has already been there the whole time Um, even in like you know whatever earlier stages or however you want to talk about that um yeah but that's always interesting to see
1: yeah it's 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 so wild to track our our unique evolutionary journeys in each previous uh lily pad and and we talked about this before but i think the the real goal with looking back at our each of our unique journeys there, there's a tendency when we do evolve to the next stage or leap to the next lily pad or or grab uh, the next swinging trapeze bar to kind of look at the previous trapeze bar lily pad with some disdain how could i have ever believed that and i think real maturity and uh, groundedness is that transcendent include you know that we can look back at the previous stage with deep appreciation and while we say i no longer hold to that and certainly my journey from a very conservative uh presbyterian minister who was a five point calvinist uh and lived in a lot of fear uh, from that to where I am now as an Episcopal priest, who some would say is even pushing the envelope, uh, even within that very progressive fold to have all of that uh, held with gentleness and appreciation.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that language of of
1: transcend and include is
0: huge. Um, And actually I've been doing recently uh, offline, I've been taking this class uh with trace bell who listeners uh, he's been on the yeah. show a few times uh yeah. but trace leads this really cool class called living the spiral and it's about like spiral dynamics mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um if you're familiar and listeners if you don't know what that is i did an episode on spiral dynamics you can go back and find it um with trace a couple months ago but the, with spiral dynamics a lot of people uh, will fall into that trap that you're talking about where they think like, oh, I was once like in blue, but now I'm in orange and like shame mm. on everybody in blue or something like that. <laughs> but what Trace does so well in his class is he shows that like the spiral is, it's not like these levels are are better and, and some are bad or something like that, but rather there's health and unhealth in all of the stages. Yeah. And yeah. so in order to, to integrate and, and use the spiral properly, it's seeing the health in those previous stages and then like integrating them all together um, yeah. and recognize. So that's like the, again, the transcendent include, and then also realizing and recognizing that we're not ever just in one stage on the spiral. So we can't like Lord mm. it over somebody and be like, Oh, look, I'm in second tier consciousness and you're still stuck <laughs> over here. So, cause like, if you do that, then you don't understand the spiral. <laughs> right. right. Um, and so like, but rather we have these centers of gravity we're like oh my center of gravity is is very green or you know whatever um and then recognizing other people too have these centers of gravity but these spaces exist within all of us and we can it, it it's more flowy than it is uh you know just straight
1: yeah. you know, like a staircase or something yeah life li- life is not uh staircase it it is a spiral yeah i I do think in the early days i I thought spiritual growth could be tracked on the x and y axis and it would be kind of a constant linear upward movement which of course is not at all any experience experience within reality it is uh herky-jerky and swirly and all over the place yeah Uh, and so uh it's fascinating it reminds me i was years ago I i was sitting with my spiritual director and I was kind of lamenting the fact that I had spent all these years at a very conservative, earning my master's degree at a very conservative seminary. And, uh, I was really struggling with the fact that I spent all these hours, all this money and all this energy in writing these papers and countless hours of conversations, uh, and, you know, proposing and espousing views that I no longer hold to like 95% of what I held that I no longer hold to. And so I asked him, I was like, is this just a waste of time? And I love, he said to me, he said, this, I've got, I've got the greatest spiritual director. He's, he's, he's so, he's like Yoda. You just never know what he's going to say. And he tends to go story-based, but he said, um, he said, Greg, you know, when you're swimming laps and you come to the end of a turn and do one of those flip turns and your legs kick out and you push up up, off against the wall and it jettisons you out into the pool. He said, what happens if you do a kick turn, you know, in the middle of the pool, you know, he said, you flip around, your legs kick out, but there's nothing there. So you just sink. And that's where he said, your, your seminary experience is like the wall of that pool. So that when you've done that flip turn, you've got a strong place to push off of. So because of that experience, you've got energy, clarity, propulsion that has pushed you solidly to where you are now. You would never be where you are now without that experience. And so look back at your past with gentleness, grace, and appreciation. And so since that day, I've, I've really appreciated uh that work. It's it's conscious effort to look back at my journey with appreciation. But I do think that that understanding that our past is like the capacity for that flip turn, and I wouldn't be where I am without that. So looking back, even even uh, my my five point Calvinist days with tenderness uh, and appreciation.
0: Yeah, I absolutely love it. That's such a great metaphor too, um, and it's one. It's helpful. It's just always helpful to remember too, because it's easy. <laughs> it's easy to have days, at least for me, I'll speak for myself, um, where I get angry. Actually, yesterday was one of these days for me, uh, just complete honesty, like halfway through my day, I just came to a place of like such anger and frustration and resentment. Um, because I I had seen people talking about uh, the Passion Conference, which is like this, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of teenagers, they bring together, throw them into a stadium and put on a concert for them um and passion still held their conference even during this you know massive outbreak of the the omicron Omicron. variant and it just it made me angry because it it seems in my opinion listeners i know people have different opinions on the whole COVID thing but in my opinion it's insanely socially irresponsible and it seems almost idolatrous right we're doing this big freaking concert paying these speakers, you know, they're getting paid a shit ton of money to be there. These are the, you know, mega church pastors of the world. These bands are getting money up the butt, like passion's making a ton of money, uh, to come together and then say something like, Oh, don't worry. God will protect us from COVID. And then guess what? All these COVID cases broke out from the passion conference, go figure. So like that just made me so angry. But then what frustrated me even more was I was like, well, wait a minute, Josh, like I tried to have compassion and like, think about it. And then I realized I was like, dude, if this was like two or three years ago, I probably would have like been like, yeah, go passion conference. (laughs) Like I, you know what I mean? Like I might've even been one of the people like going to it or something like that. So, and that, that really like wrecked me. And I was just, I had so much anger. And and then that anger tore turned away from others and back towards myself. Mm. Um, And I wasn't able to resolve it. I went to bed angry which the Bible says is a sin. So I guess I'm going to hell now. Um,
1: <laughs> but I did. that's your only one, man. You're doing good. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that transcendent include can be so difficult, but it is also, it's just so necessary.
1: So like and it, it it is work, it, you know, for me to this day, I still can get pretty easily uh, triggered by my previous, some of my previous stages. Um, and I know for me that's probably because I still have some sense of fragility, you know, in, in where I am. Um, that usually is an indication for me that I'm not being gracious and kind and self-compassionate if I'm unable to, you know, extend compassion to them. And I really do a lot of work with this, you know, it's easy to say, well, if I were you, I would never have gone to that conference. But of course, if we were them, we would be doing the exact same thing because we would be interpreting life through their unique paradigm, born of their unique fish tank of circumstances, family system and cultural context. And so it does create the space for for dialogue uh, instead of judgment. But you're right, man, especially with a particular um uh, faith communities or particular perspectives, it's triggering and it takes me a ton of work. If I meet someone who's been disenfranchised from the church and is angry with God, I—it it is so easy for me i love that person off right out of the gate i don't do any work i'm just like i totally get it i love you and there's no trigger like if you get someone who's pissed off at the church like i want to give them a hug and there's zero effort in that but if i get someone by people yeah i'm just like okay i get you i so get you but if you get someone on the other side that you know, uh, is, is for example, going to the passion conference and and breathing in someone else's face with intention because God can protect them. That does trigger me. And it takes me a whole lot more work, but again, that's the, 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 and I feel it first in my body. As soon as my body starts bracing, that's my invitation to take a breath because I know it's probably not going down the right road. And I don't beat myself up for having that reaction. I just can be just as kind and gentle with myself, but it takes a lot of work to do that. You're right. That's the work.
0: Yeah. And that, I mean, I guess that that kind of transitions nicely into to what I wanted to talk about today with you anyway. Um, there's a dude that I really like, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, Um, or people who like read his stuff, some call him Thai, which just means teacher. Uh, but Thai talks about this idea of uh, with things like suffering or, or emotions, um, that instead of rejecting our emotions, we should actually Uh, Nurture them the same way that a a Mm. mother would, you know, nurture a a crying infant. Uh, We too should should nurture um, our emotions, our our anger, our frustration and not resist it and actually try to look deeply into uh, our frustration. Because as we look deeply, then we can come to a place of understanding. And once we understand, we can have compassion and compassion then starts to ease the suffering. Yeah. And uh, he talks a lot about that in, in his book, uh, No Mud, No Lotus, <laughs> which is about <laughs> suffering because you don't you don't have a lotus without the mud. Um, mm. And in the same way, one could argue that uh, without suffering, um, it's possible that we we don't have happiness. Mm. And so Thich Nhat Hanh is a Buddhist teacher, um, a, a Zen master, and something that is unique about both of our, our journeys is that we have found uh, a home, I guess, or a, a, res- a deep residence with um, some of these uh, Buddhist teachers that are out there, and it mm-hmm. has actually uh, made our spiritual journey um, more vibrant and more beautiful and more alive. And there's mm-hmm. come a lot of growth with that. And so I just I wanted to talk about Buddhism with you, today. <laughs> try Let's to figure it. It, figure out what it's what it's done for us, but also like. Why is it that so many people uh who are similar to us um find their way into this this realm of of thinking? So
1: Yeah, I love it. Two two Christians splashing around in Buddhism as as best we can and exploring the strange magnetism, you know. Yeah, what is the draw? Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. And so actually I think what could maybe help get us into that conversation. I have this little uh, for all you good Christians out there, devotional is what we'll call it. I have a nice little devotional here uh, that Thich Han wrote. And it's just called Your True Home, The Everyday Wisdom of Thich Han, And it has uh, like a little meditation uh, for each day of the year. And so I thought maybe I would read today's uh, meditation and then put you on the spot, see what it does for you and uh, use that as our jumping off point. So here we go, it's called I Have Arrived. We believe that happiness is possible only in the future. That is why the practice I have arrived is very important. The realization that we have already arrived, that we don't have to travel any further, that we are already here can give us peace and joy. The conditions for our happiness are already sufficient. We only need to allow ourselves to be in the present moment and we will be able to touch them.
1: Wow. You know, the, the, as I sit with that, what I'd love to do is just like ease into the hot tub of that word, those words and just settle steep for a little while like tea. But just in terms of my a, a few first responses that were stirred within me. Uh, the first one just reminded me, of course, of Jesus's uh, invitation to not worry about tomorrow. Today has enough worries of its own. And that's just invitation to be present, to really live into the present and not be consumed with the future. Um, and the second one, that it's all within, of course, reminds me that he said the kingdom of God is within. And... And we talked we talked about this last time, but you know, for a long time I thought the kingdom of God was a place we go to in the future, but but he said the kingdom of God is within, is at hand and present tense. So it's an invitation that everything we long for, it's all inside. Uh, and the answer is not external. I, I did a uh I had a post on uh social media the other day where you know I grew up in Asia. I grew up uh until I was uh, 12, I lived in Japan, pretty much most of that time in Japan and then Taiwan. And my earliest years, I sp- spent a whole lot more time in visiting Buddhist temples, uh, than, than any, uh, churches or cathedrals. And I shared a story about kind of this profound, my earliest memory of a profound spiritual awakening that took place at this Buddhist temple. That was a little bit of a hike, uh, away from our house on top of this mountain. And I just shared this kind of this, I was only nine years old, but it was this sense I was sitting among the incense and sandalwood with all these people bowing and praying and ringing bells. And I sat in the corner of this temple with my shoes off and it was just this expand this, it probably only lasted a few seconds, but it was this moment where I kind of left the limits of my individuality and I identified with all these other people and the smells and the sounds and the bowing and the earnest seeking, uh, that was all around me. And I felt a connection that was larger than myself. And again, it probably only lasted for a minute. I don't even think I told my parents about it. Um, and it was only kind of in retrospect that I look back and, and unpacked the significance of it, but I posted about that. And, uh, I'm still friends with a lot of my old uh, conservative Presbyterians, at least on social media. And I try to be in real life too, not just on social. And, but I, I got some, a, one of those pastors wrote me, he said, brother, comma, uh, which you know is not going to be good when you start the sentence that way. Brother, comma, are you saying that Buddhism, it is, is it all resonant with, with Christianity, in particular, uh, it, where, where souls will go for eternity? And I thought that was really interesting. And I just wrote back, I absolutely think there's incredible resonance and a ton of Venn overlap between Buddhist philosophy and Christianity. If you'd like to talk more, please DM me. Well, no surprise I didn't hear from him. Um, but but I do think this idea, there, there is a triggering aspect uh, that happens within particular Christian paradigms and, and, and Buddhist uh, philosophy. And I think that even out of the gate with Jesus's teaching, what Thich Nhat Hanh is saying, there's incredible overlap. There's gorgeous overlap inviting us to presence. And when you begin to look at the mystic traditions of most religions, whether in Buddhism or in Judaism or the Sufis uh, in, in Islam, like Hafiz and Rumi, uh, or, or even within Christianity, they begin to sound very similar. There's this, this deep resonance that just transcends our boundaries. Um, and to me, Thich Nhat Hanh is one of those Buddhist mystics uh, that understands. It, it just reminds me, maybe you've heard this quote uh, from Thich Nhat Hanh, but it just reminded, I saw it the other day and I, and I, I thought of uh, you, but Thich Nhat Hanh said this, there's a misconception that Buddhism is a religion and that you worship Buddha. Buddhism is a practice like yoga. You can be a Christian and practice Buddhism. I met a Catholic priest who lives in a Buddhist monastery in France. He told me that Buddhism makes him a better Christian. I love that. And, and so that to me is leaping off of Thich Nhat Hanh's work is that in the same way you can be uh, you can be a mathematician that plays tennis or you can be a, a, a pastor that does yoga. You can be a Christian that practices Buddhism um, because it is a philosophy. Of course, just like Christianity, there's a thousand denominations, right? There's a thousand perspectives and there's some, particularly in the East uh sects of buddhism buddhism that are worship oriented that do view the buddha as divine or worship ancestors but particularly buddhism in the west uh, is far more practice oriented um and it is it is a philosophy that can be practiced rather uh than a, a religion to be worshiped
0: yeah absolutely i think that distinction is huge right um and i was trying to have i was having that conversation with somebody recently um because they were asking me and they were they're a, a new christian that's their language not mine a new christian and they were here at my house and they were they were asking me they were like josh why do you have all this buddhist shit everywhere <laughs> like they saw the books on my desk and then uh he was like how can you read that aren't you a christian so i was trying to mm-hmm. explain to him uh the overlap and the the you know, talking about it as a a practice or a philosophy and showing him the ways that it has actually enhanced uh, my faith or the deep resonances that it has. Um, And this, yeah, that, and it's, I mean, though, I'm, cause like you said, the overlaps are huge. And like, once you, once you start reading the mystics, I think that's the path that brought me into Buddhism in the first place was Mm. reading Christian mystics. And then they were like, Hey, have you heard of these other people? And then, you know, come to find out that Thich Nhat Hanh has worked with people like Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. And was an integral player in like the peace movement around the Vietnam War. Mm. Uh, And he's Vietnamese listeners, by the way, if you didn't know this. And he would teach things like, uh, you know, people are not the enemy, but fear, Mm. anger, hatred, division, those are, are the enemy. That sounds a whole lot like something this dude Paul wants, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Uh, and that, like, he, you know, he's interacted with uh, with the Pope and, and the Dalai Lama. There's this deep resonance. Yeah. Um, when something is true, like this is something I, like when something is true, right? As Christians, especially as like fundamentalist Christians, we claim to say, like, we have the truth, the ultimate yeah. truth, we have it. And so if we have the ultimate truth why are you so afraid of seeing the ultimate truth elsewhere? Because yeah. what's true in one place is true everywhere, right? It has yeah. to be for it to be true.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, so, tr- truth is truth. And, yeah. and once we know that that we can we can lean into it without without anxiety or fear. It it you remind me of I remember one time in the early 2000s I was driving down the road listening to the radio and I heard this great quote and that's I was a uh, uh, Pre, I was a pastor at a church and you know, you're writing your sermon all the time when you're a pastor and you got to preach in, preach week in, week out. And I heard this quote and I was like, oh, that'd be great for my sermon. And then it said, and then they concluded with, yeah, and that was a Dalai Lama. And I was like, dang it, I can't use it because it was a Dalai Lama. And, and that was my paradigm at the time, right? Like, I, even though it was truth and beautiful, I couldn't use it because it was outside of my neighborhood. And if I quoted someone outside my neighborhood, it would be almost validating and vindicating uh, an alternate false worldview that was leading people to hell. Uh, and in, instead of the freedom of recognizing uh, that that truth is truth is truth, and that God is God, and we can look for it everywhere without fear, um, and that if everyone is created in the Imago day. Uh, in the image of God and has that that kind of, it's all within, then we can find some beauty and brilliance uh, all around and everybody becomes our teacher. Uh, we can, everybody we meet becomes someone who can reflect something new to us. But that, that for me, that old, for me, that fear-based uh, paradigm uh, was very restricting. In fact, I just had someone uh, that was a part of second breath, the second breath community of practice on this little Facebook group and they wrote me and said, Greg, I, I want you to know that I'm going to have to uh, uh, leave the group uh, and because you are uh, espousing uh, beliefs that are contrary to mine uh, as, a, as a, they didn't say conservative Christian, but it was a, as a, within a conservative Christian mindset. Uh, and I said, well, I so appreciate your integrity, your heart, your willingness to write me and tell me that. You didn't have to do that. Uh, but here's a, a question. Um why uh, do you not want to expose yourself with views that are differing than yours? What's the threat? Um, and it was really fascinating. There, there was not really a clear answer. But, but for me, I remember what that feeling was like is I feel fragile. And what's going to happen is I'm going to be polluted by the magnetic draw of these other belief systems. And if, unless I put my walls up and, and bring the gate up and put the moat around my castle, I might be polluted uh, by the liberalism and by the world's agenda. And, and of course, that's the teach. And I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about any particular denomination, but anytime you have a fear-based system that says don't listen to others, that's, that's kind of the marking of a cult. I mean, it, it's, 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 it's just when you have systems that say don't listen to any other perspectives and hem yourself in to surround yourself only by like-minded people, you need to ask, is that, is that really coming from a position of strength and security? Or is that born out of fragility and fear?
0: Yeah, the fear. I mean, I think the fear thing is huge. And I think it ties back into as well, which you you said a little bit ago about uh, that pastor friend that reached out to you and specifically wanted to know if you were making claims about people's souls and their eternity. Uh, <laughs> that's completely fear driven. Right. And I, yeah. but, but I, I resonate with that so deeply because I used to very much that was my world. Right. Yeah, And yeah. Um, that's why one of the first things when I started, you know, to use the popular term, deconstructing my faith, one of the first things that I started to break down was the concept of hell. Mm. And so at first, I became an annihilationist first, right?
1: Sure, that's the gentle step. That's the gentle step.
0: Right, the gentle yep. step, become an annihilationist, which I I would argue has much more solid grounding if you're talking about how the Bible talks about things yes. uh, than eternal conscious torment does, like hands down.
1: Yeah, that's, um, pu- that's, that's 90% Dante. Not Jesus. Right. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And then, um, then I started reading like universalism stuff. I was like, oh, everybody goes to heaven when they die. Uh, but now, like, I, it's weird, man. I don't know how to say this in a way that's not super blunt. And listeners, forgive me because I know this is a deeply important question that people struggle with. I was there, but I, like, I don't care about that question anymore. And I can't explain to you why, but the, the kind of, universalism uh that i'm attracted to or that i want to to promote is not about going to heaven when we die i don't even know right. what that means greg <laughs> right
1: i have of no course. idea no, no, none of us do
0: but rather this this deep universalism that exists here in the present moment uh mm. that shows that all of us all of creation is universally accepted and loved mm. and within the divine that that and and the thing that's missing is our awareness of that all of us are standing in forgive me i've been reading some trinitarian stuff but all of us are within the divine flow the divine flow of love between father son and holy spirit to speak in a christian way everybody exists within that and it's that's the kind of and that that kind of universalism is practical because then you can wake up and see like oh wow like I'm deeply interconnected with my neighbor, you know, with the the people who look and believe different, differently than me from down the street, the people with different religions or no religion or whatever. Um, It gives you a care for for creation as a whole. Whereas, oh, everyone goes to heaven when they die. What, what practical, what does that do now? Nothing. (laughs) And so for me, I was like, oh my goodness, like, so often we worry and spend so much time. And I was one of these people. I spent so much time fixated and worrying about what happened after I die life after death that I gave up and wasn't thinking about the life that has already been gifted to me right here. And right now, I wasn't able to live this life, the gift that God has already given me because I was too fixated about what was going to happen in the next life. And I think if people are honest, That's probably a lot of us, right?
1: Sure. Well, I remember I saw a a sermon from an evangelical pastor, a video where it was like this huge rope. The rope looked like it was 100 yards long, you know, and but there was like three inches at the end of the rope that had a little bit of red tape on it. And he was saying pretty much that, look, that red tape is your life on earth, but then the real life begins afterwards, right? And so it was this massive rope of just saying, so consider, do you really, are you trying to get your good, your heaven now and corrupt your life when really life's about, uh, yet life's about the next what really comes after and that's the reason you know this is why Marx said that you know religion is the opiate of the masses and this is why Nietzsche said that when you pick up the New Testament it's so toxic that you should wear gloves and it wasn't because I think that Nietzsche was innately opposed to the teaching of Jesus but he had seen the impact of religion on influencing people to live small lives and that we end up and that's why Nietzsche said you know Build your house on the slopes of Vesuvius, meaning live dangerously, go for it, live with passion and engage. And I think ironically that's far more in line with what Jesus was saying and how he embodied his life than so many Christians. and and, and ironically, when we begin to look, and this kind of goes back to tying in uh, Christianity with Buddhism, um, when we go back and one of the complaints of the people of my post on Facebook that, that she wanted to leave the group was well, she said that I, it seemed like I was saying that people were innately good. And if that were true and we weren't corrupt, then I was minimizing the impact of the death of Jesus on the cross, right? Because within that system, the whole thing is that we are we are corrupt, we are objects of wrath, we are unworthy and, and Jesus had to die to pay the white hot wrath of the Father so that we could be forgiven so we could go to heaven. which of course, not to get into the, the details of that, but that's a pretty new. no one believed that until the Reformation. For the first 1500 years of the church, no one believed that at all. Prior to that, it was that we, that Jesus was giving us honor prior to that for the first thousand years of the church, they thought Jesus died to pay off the devil, uh, not the father anyway, but not to get into that, but, but the whole linchpin within that system of thought was our kind of innate corruption, original sin. And, and the Buddhists, and I, and I believe what's deeply resonant within Christianity, uh, prior to Augustine, honestly, uh, was that there was a sense of innate goodness, original blessing. And this is what St. Francis and some of the other, uh, uh, early mystic monks were were leaning into um, our, our innate blessing our innate goodness and it wasn't until augustine uh, wrote about original sin and he was came up with his narrative for the garden of eden prior to augustine no one thought the snake in the garden was the devil that was just a clever creature But Augustine brought that narrative in and brought this original sin and ever since then, of course, once we go through the century, then, gosh, you get to John Calvin with total depravity. And then we have just drank the Kool-Aid on kind of we're pieces of shit by nature. And I fully believe that for years. And I, I was convinced that the way to spiritual growth was the more that I believed that I was a nasty, totally corrupt piece of shit, but somehow Jesus still loves me. That the more I understand the depth of forgiveness, the more I understand the beauty of Jesus. It doesn't work. That is a flawed system. I tried hard, and all it did was make me neurotic and calcify myself. Hate. And I think one of the, the draws, once you recognize that 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 the evolution of the doctrine of original sin was born, you know, as everything evolved over the centuries, but not going back to the original teachings of Jesus. And even of, in, in my opinion, the the, the writing of the, the scriptures, once you get that, you, you can approach it with a, a different grace and a different approach of appreciating original blessing, which is far more congruent uh, with Buddhist teaching and with your reading from Thich Nhat Hanh, and that this kingdom of God is within. And once we recognize... That And this is why I think this is a big reason I'm so magnetically drawn to a lot of the teaching of Western Buddhism in particular, and by that I'm thinking about the teachers like Thich Nhat Hanh, Tara Brach, Norman Fisher, uh, Jack Kornfield, Uh, all of them have been very influential uh, in my understanding that this is this is the only medicine that their teaching is the balm that has been so healing on the self-hate that was calcified by my messed up Christian paradigm at the time not all Christian parents but the particular evangelical Christian theology that I metabolized and drank wholeheartedly the the healing for loving myself with grace and compassion with radical self-acceptance in the words of Tara Brock that has come from Buddhist teaching. And I'm sure that it's out there within the Christian tradition too. And honestly, what I do as the executive director of Second Breath is take this gorgeous teaching and reframe it within the Christian context. That's what Thomas Merton did. That's what Thomas Keating did, right? That's uh, what Cynthia Bourgeau and uh, Ilya Delia and all of these great authors are doing are taking so much of this gorgeousness of the East and reframing it because it does, it is there within our tradition. We've, we've, we've just missed it. It's like that, that, that uh, trunk in the attic that we've neglected. And we go up and discover, holy shit, I, it's been here the whole time. I just forgot about it. And, and I feel like our job, at least my job at second breath. And I feel like your, uh, what's your job is I've seen you embody on this podcast with both with deconstruction and reconstruction is rediscovering uh, this beauty in the attic within our tradition and inviting people to splash around it. And again, and experience that freedom.
0: Yeah, dude, a hundred a <laughs> hundred and fifty percent. And here's like here's the thing when when we start with this idea of original sin, when you start with a problem or start in a hole, like you just it just gets worse, right? Didn't Jesus mm. talk about building a solid foundation? When you mm. start with a shitty foundation, what's gonna happen? It's just gonna continue right. to produce shit. <laughs> yeah. Like that's just what it does. And so when you start in a hole it's it, you just never really get out of it or when you start with a, a, a problem and then build everything on the problem it just becomes worse and then on top of that you start to become the god that you worship right we yeah. see that today oh, gosh. where yeah where so many people are confused like how are these christians so mean and so vengeful and you know so pro you know death penalty or whatever it is and then you realize like wait a minute they're just behaving like the god that they're told to worship the god who is vindictive and you know and hateful and and all this kind of stuff and of course of course you become like that um and so i think with within christianity we have this idea that the you know we're made in the image of god the imago dei like you said um where i i like to talk about like all of us have uh christ within us Mm. and like Mm -hmm. the the Christ within me can recognize the Christ within you and and with everything. Mm-hmm. And um uh Thich Nhat Hanh Han has talked about the the Buddha image that everybody has a Buddha image uh, <laughs> inside of them. And when I was reading it's like man like that sure sounds like the the image of God because he talks about he said in in order for change to happen and and for peace to to come about um everybody needs to become a Buddha. And if yeah. I can be so bold to say it, if I were to preach that in a church, I would just say everybody needs to become a Christ, which yeah. that's all Christian means, right? Is, is little Christ, right. and yeah. and this that's not a a, a crazy thing to say that theosis or, or the idea of becoming more divine is the whole point. Yeah. And you know your your previous tradition you just called that sanctification, <laughs>
1: right? Right.
0: And 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 Buddhism talks about uh this idea that inside of all of us we have seeds right so we have seeds of love and compassion and, and kindness and generosity um but also we have seeds of of anger and and resentment and contempt and and hatred and and they talk about watering your seeds so what seeds are you watering within yourself that will then you know grow out and so when i Like I I ditched the idea of original sin a while ago, um, because I think it's just far more accurate to say, rather, people people are one made in the image of God. In Genesis, it says, you know, people are very good, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so start there, but then also acknowledge that even though we're made in the image of God, um, all of us have the propensity for tremendous good, but at the same time, a propensity for tremendous evil. Sure, and we can choose to live into either of those things. And when we, in Buddhism, like in Buddhist language, when we water the seeds of the fruits of the spirit, mm-hmm. that's a really good thing, right?
1: It's that, that's so important. Yeah, that, and one big difference to me between my Christian tradition and what I've what I love in Buddhism uh, is that, and again, I just say this was in my experience within conservative and evangelical Christianity. Uh, when when I had a pretty profound conversion experience when I was 17, um, there was a lot of me that uh, was so afraid of falling back into the darkness where I'd been that I immediately, I I became a good, I'd been a very rebellious kind of uh, angry, drunk part, you know, uh, know, selling drugs and fake IDs. And just, I didn't even need to, it was just the entrepreneurial thrill of it at the time and doing all sorts of unhealthy things. And when I had this conversion experience, it was such a transformation. I was afraid of falling back into the, the the dark pit. That I became a good boy, the ultimate behaved well. You know, good boy. And I kind of I, I was I viewed my my sin was corruption, evil, bad, darkness. With any any impulse within me that was angry, judgmental, uh, fearful, that was bad and horrible. And I needed to embrace the light. and And what I found was I was actually almost using my moral compass as a Christian, my light as a weapon, I weaponized the light to attack the dark within me. Right. Um, And even though there was Paul in Romans seven talking about, it's not me that wants to do the bad. It's the sin living in me. There's a a separation of identity, which actually was a pretty gracious and graceful way to interact with his identity. But even at that time, but for me, I kind of weaponized, I I was very unkind to myself i was very unkind with any kind of negative impulse and it did have the capacity to amend my behavior i really walked the straight and narrow right because i was but inwardly i was so harsh to myself and i pretty much almost like i was if if i was a if i was interacting with my inner child i'd be grabbing him by the scruff of the neck and say you're not effing misbehaving you're going to get your shit together and you're going to live right and i scared my inner self enough to behave correctly but it created a lot of self hate and, and a lot of internal distance. The difference with the Buddhists is that the Buddhists say, they, they talk about self-acceptance and self-compassion, and they say there's two wings to this bird. One is clarity, that you really have to be honest with what's going on inside of yourself. That is both the, the, the love and the hate. That is both the impulse for compassion and the impulse for violence. That you, The impulse uh, for letting go and the impulse of lust to to grasp and own. That that Be clear about it. And then the other wing of that bird is is total gentle, compassionate acceptance that you approach your impulse for kindness in the same way that you approach your impulse for violence with total acceptance and gentleness. And you actually begin to then hold them both with tenderness. And far from that, what I was told is if you give any power or acceptance to your negative impulses, you are going to fall off the deep end. And fall into darkness but very contrary to that as i've approached the parts of me that i would say that in christian worlds i'm ashamed of how could i ever have that thought i can't believe you know i ask people all the time when i teach second breath classes imagine if there was a screen on your back that showed everybody your thoughts that everybody around you could actually see what is you're thinking about all day long and everyone freaks out because they know what they think right everyone knows that their thoughts are neurotic and sexual and violent and and beautiful and lovely and all of the above but the 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 difference is no one could judge you because everyone else's movie is just as neurotic as yours but but as christians we have been taught to shut down repress minimize get rid of attack that darkness but the buddhists approach the shadow with just as much tenderness and compassion and acceptance as they do the light and that ends up bearing genuine fruit of the spirit that is the way to love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness all the fruit of the spirit far more than i think i think that's one aspect of why i'm so magnet magnetically drawn to buddhism is because it is this healing balm towards some of the self-hate that has uh, calcified uh, over my decades as a, a conservative christian
0: yeah dude that i mean that's me to at as well like i remember when i back when i was in a uh, spiritual direction regularly um my spiritual director said had me do this like uh test i guess is what it was i think um oh goodness gracious what is her name uh bernie brown uh yeah. like developed this test or something like that i think it was her uh, that had to do with like it would basically give you a scale one to ten how was your uh, self-talk? Like, how Mm. do you think about yourself? How do you speak about yourself? I did the test and I got like a three out of 10. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. And like, but it's because, but it was because of the theology and the the ideas that I had, like you said, calcified. Um, And I still honestly, dude, I still struggle with that. Like I told you the other day, um, I have this book, Radical Acceptance um
1: great book awesome book
0: yeah what you mentioned and i texted you and i was like dude how when i read this book the so the author first name is tara when i read this book my thoughts are like wow thank you so much tara but also fuck you tara (laughs) 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 right because it's just and i i mean that in like in the most loving way possible like uh, (laughs) so so tongue-in-cheek but it's just it's so true and and the but i i even think psychologically and like. Friends, if you're listening and you're a psychologist, please feel free to correct me. Um, but when it comes to bringing about real change in people's lives, telling yeah. them why they are shit doesn't do it. It does yeah. not work. But yeah. actual change and transformation comes from radical radical acceptance and love. Yeah, that's where that's where change happens. And I yeah. think that's you know Jesus models that within the pages of Scripture. And I think that's exactly. Uh, what these Buddhists have intuited forever, yeah. and now psychology is catching up and saying, "Like, oh wait a minute, like these guys actually kind of know what they're talking about."
1: <laughs> right. I mean, he, I mean, again, ironically, when you look at radical acceptance with Tara Brock, who's a, a, a Buddhist, um, that here's here's Jesus with the the story of the woman caught in adultery. You know, neither do I condemn you, Um, and that he would. Whereas others saw a a disgusting leper judged by God, uh, Jesus saw a brother in need of healing, and he would actually, far from the, the tradition, which was if you touch the leper, you become unclean, Jesus embraces him, and far from Jesus becoming unclean, that the leper becomes clean, right? The power of acceptance and love embodied over and over and over again in the Gospels and i think that's where there's power that that you that that if you're harsh with yourself with the inner critic it definitely can amend outward behavior for a season but it does not create authentic change from the inside out the only thing that changes us authentically from the inside out is when we feel fully seen and known and loved and accepted for who we really are and then we actually have the courage begin to open up and and blossom and grow and church at its best is a place, it, it's a laboratory for messing up and forgiving. It's a laboratory for being completely nakedly ourselves and vulnerable. And of course, ironically, church is oftentimes the exact opposite where you're in a horrible argument with your spouse before you get out of the car. Uh, and as soon as you get out of the car and walk into church, Hey, how y'all doing and, and we, it's a place for masks. Uh, ironically, instead of vulnerability. You know, to me, I think AA is a far more gorgeous model of what a church should look like in terms of every uh, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, every race, all of those things disappear as people are authentic about their struggle and their nakedness, and they simply walk together in in that beautiful brokenness. Um, and that, to me, to me, what's so alluring and attractive and magnetic about Buddhism is that it is, acknowledging the shadow that is in all of us, the, 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 the bad wolf, the, 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 uh, uh, the, 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 dark seeds, and it doesn't deny him. It doesn't judge him, but it's saying that what's going to happen, what's going to bring the greatest amount of life to you is when you approach them with gentleness and deep acceptance with the same compassion that you're approaching your light, uh, that, that to me is, is, is gorgeous. And, and that to me is, especially with Christianity in the West. Uh, that's a one of the important puzzle pieces that's fallen out of the puzzle. It's got lost on the floor many yeah. centuries ago. We can't find it. And to me, the puzzle is incomplete without that that deep uh, compassion, not only in our light but our shadow as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then to go back to what you said before, the church often teaches us that <laughs> the way to, the way to be more holy is the the more we can get on social media and say, "Oh, I'm a." filthy rag and a, a piece of shit and like all this kind of stuff that makes you like a better christian somehow it's i remember like, i was taught i remember <laughs> early
1: in my days or this was this was seminary man i was taught that if you look at saint paul's trajectory that in his earlier epistles he would say paul an apostle of god and then later as he grew he would say paul least of the apostles and then in his one of his late the most uh you know final epistles he said paul chief of sinners and they, and they took this uh, concept and made it linear to say the more the more you grow spiritually the more you realize that you're a piece of shit the more that you see God's holiness the more that you see that you are a vile worm and if you can and, and that the more you see your vile worm you'll see God's beauty and and majesty will make you love and man I I really did because of that for years like I had a microscope in my belly button constantly looking for my sin and guess what if you go looking for sin you're gonna find it if you go looking uh, for, for something that rots, you're going to find it because it's, it's there. But I thought that the more that I saw my rot, it reminded, I finally went to a therapist. I was a pastor at a Presbyterian church and, and like half the therapists in my town came to my church. And so I couldn't, I couldn't go find a therapist in my town. So I, I drove an hour and a half away to, uh, to Raleigh, North Carolina to see this therapist. And I was on my second or third session with him. And I was, ta- I was pretty much just describing what a piece of shit I was because I was convinced that with a therapist, I just needed to, let's just agree with what a complete piece of shit I am so I can really grow. And it was in my second or third session where he just looked at me he said, excuse me, Greg, I was in the middle of a, a, a self-hate diatribe. And he says, excuse me, Greg, do you see how bored I am right now listening to you? I was like, what? He's like, yeah, do you see? My eyes are glazed. I'm exhausted and bored by how much you're beating yourself up. And I said, what, what are you talking about? He said, Greg you're a good man. You're a good pastor. You're you're a good husband. You're a good father. You're a good friend. And I was like, all of that sounded heretical to me. For me to say that I was a good man, that was deep heresy. But I remember I finally realized like, that's when it dawned on me that this existing system of uh, God-ordained self-hatred was not working. Uh, and I remember I came home and I told my wife, I'm taking the microscope out of my belly button. I'm going to live with the reality that I'm a good person. And if God wants to show me something that I need to work on, I'll trust that God's big enough to do that. But I am no longer beating myself up. And I remember in my community, that was like, Greg has gone off the deep end. He's a heretic. But it was a a game-changing moment. Um, And to me, this is where the the Buddhists didn't have to deconstruct that because they never had it constructed. You know, they always approached it with this deep self-acceptance and gentleness for self, which led to acceptance to others, light and shadow.
0: Yeah, that that reminds me of a a story. I I either read it or I heard uh, Rob say this, like probably on his podcast or something. But uh, at one point in time, Rob Bell was uh, critiqued. Which happens all the time. So this one particular point in time, Rob was critiqued by a pastor, and the pastor said to Rob, "He's like, Rob, you know what your problem is? All you ever do is share the good news, but you never ever share anything bad." And Rob said exactly what what your therapist said. He said, "Well, that's because it's boring. Pe- do you really think people come to church and need me to tell them that?" Sometimes they do stupid shit. <laughs> <laughs> don't you think most people already know that? Like, that's not news. Like, if you're mm. honest with yourself, we know that. And I'm not talking about, again, like self-hatred, but just right. honesty, like the, like the Buddhist talk about, like, there are times I do things that are dumb. There are times like, I don't know if you saw, but Noelle just brought me lunch. There are times when mm. she does really nice stuff like this for me. And then afterwards, I'll go downstairs and be a dickhead. Mm. Like I, I know I do bad stuff. It happens. Mm. Like that's mm-hmm. boring. We don't need that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that it just reminded me of that. and and to the the sin thing, I think it's it's funny. I, I shared this when I talked to Trace last, but um, I had an insight uh, that was kind of sparked by by Alan Watts, um, who also, uh, he took a lot from the Buddhist tradition, right? Um, he even he was a philosopher. Uh, I quoted mm-hmm. him in sermons before, but I would never say it was him. Like I kind of pulled what you're talking about <laughs> earlier with the Dalai Lama. I just said yeah. uh, a famous philosopher once. <laughs> uh, because he was a, he was a priest at first. Most people don't know that he was a, a priest and then stopped doing that. But um, he talks about sin as uh basically it's like sin uh hamartia right the word means to miss the mark or miss the point which we've we've all heard that at least i have growing up in church i remember a sunday and uh get this dude backwoods town that i grew up in okay like backwoods town the pastor brought a bow and arrow like a compound bow into the sanctuary (laughs) set up a target across the sanctuary and fired an arrow across the entire sanctuary over the heads of the congregation at this oh, target wow. to make a point about sin
1: it made a point <laughs>
0: it made a point and the <laughs> fact that i still remember it yeah you oh, made a my point God, that but, landed uh, yeah but watts talked about uh, amartya missing the point and then he talks about how jesus would always talk about the kid like you were saying the kingdom of god is present the kingdom of god is within you uh if you have eyes to see and, and ears to mm. hear the point is eternal life, which is a quality of life, not a quantity. Eternal, by mm. definition, transcends time. Eternal mm. doesn't mean forever. Um, eternal can't exist within time. It's a it's a quality. And if the point is eternal life and we're so focused on all this other stuff and we're not focused on the present moment, which is a thing that the Buddhists come back to over and over, the present is the only place we can ever be. That's where eternal life is found that's the only place we can experience God. It's the only place we can have relationship. If we're missing the present moment, eternal life, then we are missing the point and we are sinning. Mm, and you. I was I was sharing this with my friend, Chad, and he said, wait a minute, Josh. So you're telling me that the church teaches people how to sin.
1: <laughs> <laughs> mm.
0: And unfortunately, I think the answer is yes. Mm. It's crazy.
1: I I think, I think there's, there's, there's a lot of truth to, uh, we we get, we, we're all, we all have paradigms, right? At second breath, we talk a lot about that everything is paradigm. And, And what we mean by that is that We all have a particular lens on life that is defining every our experience of every second of life that there's there's a quote attributed to Talmud, but I don't I'm not sure exactly where it originated, but it says we we don't see things the way they are. We see things the way we are right that we that our lens is defining reality. Um, I I wrote a a social post this morning talking about that, uh, you know, that that our paradigms are not predominantly rational, but they are emotional and primal Um, and. Uh, that's why when you talk to someone who seems really locked into their view, you can make your case so rationally about why they should do X, Y, and Z, and it just doesn't matter. It's like water off a duck's back because our, our worldviews, our lens on life, our paradigms are primarily emotional and primal. Um, and you know, to me, within the church that we have been taught, uh, the, we're, we're in a fish tank, and, and we're not even aware of it, um, and and it ends up calcifying on itself. And you're right, then I think we don't question um, and that's how we end up with systems. That that how can an entire Christian nation like Italy uh, ally themselves with the Nazis, right? And it was within their circumstances and their paradigms of the moment. And how do West? How does Western Christianity, particularly the evangelical tradition, often in conservative traditions, end up becoming uh, embodying something that looks so clearly different than Jesus? Uh, and and I think it's 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 what's evolved. And and part of that, in addition to the idea that we are innately pieces of shit and we need to embrace that. That's one facet of Western Christianity, whereas Buddhism really talks about this deep self-acceptance. Another aspect of Western Christianity in, in more conservative circles is the belief in certainty, that, that it's about uh, dogma and doctrine held fully. Um, and, and and the belief that if, if you say X, Y, and Z is fuzzy or X, Y, and Z is not really true or I'm not sure about it, well, you know that's that's dark. That's 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 sinful. That your job is to believe this particular doctrinal stance that Jesus died to forgive your sins, and He paid the white hot wrath of God. And if you believe that, you're going to heaven. And all these doctrines, right? And and many, especially in evangelical traditions, right on the church website, is this is our our dogma. This is our system of belief. This is our litmus test for who's in and who's out. If you want to be a part of this community, and so what do we do with our primal need for belonging? Well, we say, okay. And especially if someone says you need to b- believe this to go to heaven, well, then you have to grab onto it fully, even though you don't really, no one knows what happens after we die. No one. But we have to say we know unequivocally. Because if we don't, then it's, and so it's, and, and so. one aspect of, to, to me, that the, there's a deep toxicity in certainty. It, it leads to incredible uh, division, uh, dissonance, uh, and I think disassociation, because you can't really hold it. Uh, and conversely, innately within Buddhism, is a, a embracing the mystery um, and and allowing things to to be uh, complex and beyond our knowing. And and even with their tradition, they're saying you know they they say that each person is like the bodhisattva, right? That that you are on a journey and you're doing the best you can and the goal is to seek perfection while simultaneously recognizing you're never going to reach perfection, but your job in this lifetime is as best you can to move the ball down the field until your next iteration. Um, and, but even within that there's a gracefulness saying whatever you're doing now really is the best you can do right now. And it, and it just is this, this tenderness. Now that being said, there is of course, within Christianity, beautiful, uh, river flows, uh, and, and unique, uh, streams that have embraced mystery. Um, there's a great, um, leader, Verna Dozier. Uh, she says this, since I don't live by being right, I'm not destroyed by being wrong. And she says, you know, we, we always see through a glass darkly and she says, I'll live by the best I can discern today. Tomorrow I may find, find out I was wrong. And that's me. I apply that to my Christianity. Right so this is what i believe now but i know this that what i believe now i guarantee you just like you talked about earlier in the podcast that our conversation was how many months ago and how much you've evolved and transformed since then i know that when we listen back to this podcast in 6 months we're going to be like dude can you believe that we believe that then and and that's healthy right because growth is a part of is a sign of health and so so it's it's not clinging to things fearfully i used to think that my faith was like a brick wall and every new growth was like putting cement and brick in place that was solid. And I think instead the spiritual journey is much more like kind of a a standing on a a board that's on top of a ball and, and balance. And that board on top of a ball is on a boat on waves and you're holding a teacup balancing tea and and what you need in one moment of the journey might be very different in terms of positioning what you need in the next moment of the journey. And it's not a brick wall. It is a dance. Uh, and it is fluid and flowing, um, and and once we recognize that, and this is another reason I think it's within our Christian tradition, but it's really emulated clearly in a technical way in Buddhism, that they allow for this flow, allow uh, allow for, to acknowledge the myth of certainty, and embrace the uncertainty with with passion and joy. Uh, and it's and for for a long time I thought uncertainty was that pesky. Uh, that pesky part that my brain couldn't reach around and I had to tolerate. And now, especially within the Episcopal tradition, that mystery is something we celebrate and it's like a kiddie pool. We splash around in, and, and just have a blast with, and life to me is far more congruent and enjoyable when we embrace the mystery instead of uh, fearfully hold on to a false sense of certainty.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Thich Nhat Hanh talks about that too, how, how certainty is is like you said, something that brings division and and violence and, and war. And he talks, there's this, you know, humility, uh, just like in um Christian, well, at least it, it has been taught in some Christian circles, not all of them, uh, but humility is huge within Buddhism as well. And and uh Thich Nhat Hanh talks about not holding on to our beliefs and our ideas, our dogmas uh too firmly. But like you said, that here's here's what I believe today. And I'm going to, you know, do the best I can with that. But also, I'm willing to say tomorrow that I was wrong. Yeah. Um. And even he said, like, if we're going to actually achieve peace, and like, willing to, to have, you know, peace in the world, and, and things like that, interfaith dialogue is so necessary. And yeah. interfaith dialogue requires us to not hold our beliefs so damn with so much certainty, right? right Uh, because you'll never get anywhere with that and even he said even holding on to my buddhist beliefs if that is causing division then i need to be willing to admit that perhaps i'm wrong yeah Um, and that is just so huge and like the your image of a wall um was so great that i remember that like i remember originally i felt like i had to build my fortress of faith right
1: yeah Um, right and And even alliteration it even sounds good
0: Oh yeah, real good. Your fortress
1: so, of faith, baby.
0: So that's my my Southern Baptist roots. You know, <laughs> the alliteration, everything. Fortress of faith. And uh, but now I see too, like em, embracing some more Buddhist language. Like I see my faith and my my spiritual um, journey more like a river. Hmm. And oftentimes, what I find that um, unhealthy religion because I don't want to shit on all religion. Unhealthy religion is like taking a bucket and dipping it into that river and pulling it out and expecting the water that's contained within that bucket to be the river mm. it's mm-hmm. never going to be the river ever but instead mm-hmm. what you just did was you you stopped the flow you stopped yeah. you stopped the river you took a piece of yeah. it and you codified it yes. and um that like that that really works for me and i i've been upset recently because there's a an author that i really like Um, Actually, there's two authors that I really like, and I try to read their, their two most recent books, both of them on spirituality. Um, But both of them, what they were doing is they were dipping into the river of spirituality with a bucket labeled evangelical Christianity. And, and, and they were just codifying this river that is supposed to be flowing and beautiful and alive. And like, I don't know this is going to sound insanely judgmental. So listeners, forgive me, Greg, forgive me, but like, I can, I have like a pretty good bullshit sensor. And when I was reading their book, it was just, it just felt like bullshit. Like you are giving shared wisdom uh, that you just took from somewhere else, put it into an evangelical circle and are now throwing it out there as spirituality. When then there's people that I can read uh, like Richard Rohr and John Philip Newell and Thich Han and Cynthia Bourgeau, who, when I read their work, instead of it feeling like them just giving me some kind of like borrowed wisdom in a mm. prepackaged idea, they're drawing something out of my soul that I already knew at the deepest levels of who I am. Mm. And that ability to draw out, I think, is yeah. what makes a good spiritual teacher. Yes. It's somebody who is because the way I would say it again is it's it's the Christ in that spiritual yeah. teacher being able to access and, and withdraw the Christ within the other person. And so when we codify these things, it it doesn't happen. And that that image of flow within Buddhism has just been so huge for me.
1: That that Josh, that reminds me of uh I'd pastored, I was I was ordained in the, the PCA Presbyterian Church of America, and I planted a church. And I pastored it, I planted and pastored it for about nine years. And we grew from like, you know, 10 people in the living room to over a few hundred people. And we were checking all the boxes in terms of a success and diverse and all sorts of things. But I was completely burned out and my doctrine had shifted. And I remember when I uh, and and part of what was so exhausting is that within, I think, not only certainly Presbyterian circles that I think and I and I love Presbyterianism, I really do. But within that particular tradition, uh, it was very sermon centric and it became very pastor centric. And then, then I do think church in the West is looking for a cult of personality. It became also very, you know, personality centric, our church. And so and, and it was kind of like, oh, you've got questions. I've got answers. You know, it's that, the whole thing of, oh, you're struggling. I'm going to comfort you. You know, I've got the truth. You're, you're, I'm here to to download reality for you and accept this reality and live into it. And I remember I, got, I was so burned out, I, I left that church, I left that denomination, and I just found myself on then on Sunday mornings, mostly I just was drinking coffee with my wife on the back deck, but occasionally I was drawn to this Episcopal local Episcopal church. And I remember I went and sat in the very back, I went in late, and I sat in the back bench in the very back of the church, and this, the homily, the sermon was fine, but what I realized, it, it, what I realized, that it was not the high watermark of the service, um, it was not the high watermark of the service. It was uh, the, after the sermon, it went to the Eucharist, where it was you going forward to the altar rail, and the, the, the high watermark of the Episcopal liturgy was kneeling in this moment of deep connection with Christ, not the talking. Not and, and, and far from saying, you've got questions, we've got answers, they were creating a transcendent worship environment for God to meet you however God needed to meet you. And I remember once I realized it wasn't sermon-centric and it wasn't personality-centric, that it was Christocentric at this particular service in this moment, I was a blubbering mess. I started weeping on that back bench because it was so refreshing, this idea that the weight is not on a person, the weight is not you've got questions, we've got answers, but that our job is to create transcendent space. And especially now with Second Breath, this is what we do. One of the deepest tenets and core values is that we're not teaching you. We're creating space for you. You already know the answer. Our job is to create an environment for you to discover that truth within yourself. Um, we're going to empower you to be your truest self. We're not going to teach you uh, from on high for you to just add new bricks to your fortress. We want to create uh, a, a gorgeous flotilla of like-hearted soul pilgrims to float down this adventure together and create an environment where we can truly blossom all the, the the acorns all there for you to become the gorgeous oak we just want to create an environment for for that to flourish and that's a very very different uh, approach to to christianity and spirituality far from saying we've got bricks for your fortress uh we, we have got we want to create a greenhouse for you to flourish
0: yeah no, abs- absolutely. I I love I love that imagery and I think too that puts some language to why another reason why I was feeling so um uh, irritated when I was trying to read this book, dude, like uh, um because like it it was visceral. Like I mm. I was becoming irrationally angry reading a book and I didn't know why. <laughs> but part of part of what it was was it was just saying like oh your your spiritual life is in the tank here's why because you just have all the wrong ideas but if i replace your wrong ideas with these correct beliefs then your yeah. spiritual journey will be better and like it's just again it's selling yeah. it's it's the myth of the sacred object right it the, the idea that right. if we grab this thing then everything like then it'll be good then everything will be be great we talked about that in the beginning with uh tic hans little um meditation that he provided, right? That, yeah. uh, and it's just not helpful. And like, that is so frustrating to me, the idea that like, if you just listen to what I have to say, and like, follow all of these things, then everything will be great. It's just, it doesn't work that way. No. <laughs> and and no. creating that space for the, the transcendence, and like being willing to admit that was insanely liberating. But yeah. then as a pastor, when I was a pastor, when I realized that I was like, well great, now what the hell do I do? Right? Because my job is to do is to do this other thing and I can't do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and it calls yeah. that 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 dissonance um big time. But yeah, I don't know. So I I think though I want to I want to throw one more thing out there um and and see your thoughts on it cuz this is one of the things that draws me into Buddhism the most. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about it a lot. And it's the idea of interbeing that every, everything is, you know, uh, interconnected, interrelated. And that sounds just like stuff that like hippies say, when you sit around, like drops acid, smoke some weed, <laughs> everything's connected, it's all connected man. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But it's also true. It's and also so, true. And, and yeah, so I'll, I'll, throw out the things I think is crazy. And then I'll, I'll get your response. Cause I think um, Richard Rohr talks about how the Trinity, uh, like the most Christian theology hasn't been Trinitarian at all, which I a hundred percent agree with. Um, and how we've like, kind of like taken Jesus out of the Trinity, like all this crazy stuff. And he said that people are so afraid of the Trinity because they think that it will divide, right. That it, it'll just make interfaith dialogue harder, blah, 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 whatever. But he contends it's actually flipped. That's not the case. That the Trinity actually makes things uh, easier. It's it's the thing that connects us. It's the 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 divine dance, the, the 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 love, the flow of love in between the three members of the Trinity that we're invited into. That everybody is already within, regardless if they acknowledge it or not. Um, so I have this idea of Trinity, right? And then this idea of interbeing that things are all interconnected, which is something that the mystics say as well, right? Not just Buddhists. It's huge in Buddhism, but christian mystics have said this jewish muslim whatever and so i like to pay attention to uh things that i see um taught in many places because again if something's true in one place then it's going to be true everywhere Mm -hmm. and then you get into something really crazy like quantum theory which uh Quantum theory has like blown my mind. I started reading books about that recently because I'm a nerd and, uh, but I did it for purely spiritual reasons because quantum theory is showing that the things that the mystics have been intuiting for thousands of years are actually true. And quantum theory, by the way, is the most successful scientific theory. If anyone's afraid of that word theory, I ever, the, the quantum theory is why we have all of this stuff. It's, it's why we can do Zoom calls right now. It's why we have iPhones, mm-hmm. right? Quantum theory is like, is, in, is insane. And and what we see in quantum theory, there's this idea of, of what's called quantum entanglement. Mm-hmm. And we used to think that, uh, you know, if we could get down to the smallest elements in uh, the universe, then we would figure out how they all stack up like Legos and that's how the universe works. But quantum right. theory has actually showed us that that's not true. The core of the universe is relational energy. When you get down to the smallest places, you actually find nothing. <laughs> it's nothingness. It's 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 subatomic particles in relationship with one another.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But what's crazy about and and the space in between them is is nothingness. An atom is like ninety five percent nothing. It's emptiness, mm-hmm. and so is the rest of the universe. But it's it's relational energy. So you can have two subatomic particles and say one of them is red or they're both they, they're both interconnected okay so if one's red the other one's red if one's blue the other one would be blue mm. we could take those subatomic particles and separate them i'll keep one here for myself so i have one and i'm going to send one to north carolina for you to have yeah if my subatomic particle turns red yours will also turn red but mm. here's the thing they're not communicating with each other they're not sending signals back and forth however Somehow, if one turns red, the other turns red. But here's what's even crazier is it doesn't happen until it is observed by a third party. (laughs) Right. (laughs) They're both red and blue until observed upon from an outside source. Three, the dance at the core of creation is a relationship between three. That's the core of literally everything and how literally everything works. Hmm. Objects only have properties in relationship with another object. The only reason I can say this pen is small is because I can compare it to this glass that is bigger.
1: Mm.
0: But these, these, so they're inherently relational. Do you see what I'm saying? And those properties don't manifest themselves until they're observed upon by some third observing presence, myself. Mm. The core of literally everything is a relationship between three. It's all relational. It's literally all interconnected. That's what the mystics have been saying. That's the whole idea, the freaking Trinity. And that's like one of the core teachings of Buddhism. Like that blows my mind. (laughs) It makes me very excited as you can see.
1: Yeah. It's, I love that. And I love that you just blended uh, all three of those (laughs) and then into one elegant and uh, cohesive system and i do think one beautiful thing about the time that we're living in is that modern peer-reviewed research is often uh confirming what mystics from many traditions and even different philosophers have been saying for centuries uh particularly uh, with the impact of meditation and spiritual practice on the body neuroscience now unequivocally we know the impact of that on the body it's not just sweet thoughts but you're literally changing your uh, the, the way your neurons are firing and your neural pathways and again now uh with with those quantum mechanics and those dynamics we begin to confirm what the mystics have been saying about our total connectivity i think about uh, it, that that we're connected why it might it might sound like you know hi- hippies hippies on lsd the reality is bi- biologists have been saying the, the same thing too i mean we, we i think uh, one of my my body uh main teachers is philip shepherd and and he talks about that right now we are in, inhaling uh the exhalation of forests uh, that that the reality is the only reason that you and i are hate but and all of us are able to be here is because of trees and the dance of sunlight on leaves and the very fact that they the trees are producing oxygen and that when we exhale our carbon dioxide that eventually will go back to the trees and nourish them and it's this symbiotic relational connection, Um, and to think that we're isolated and alone is just, its it literally is insane, that we cannot exist as an island. It it just, it's irrational, Um, and it's not true in terms of biology. It's certainly not true in terms of physics, and we know in in all of these great mystic traditions, Buddhism and Christianity included, that we are spiritually intimately connected. Uh, It reminds me of Jesus's prayer in John 17 when he was looking at all that was coming up and he knew that he was uh, about to die. And he says, Father, you know, may they be one, you know, as as we are one, as I am in you, as you are in me and I am in them uh, and, and let them become one. And it's this language of wanting. Uh, it's this language of wanting and and total connectivity. Um, and that to me is this invitation of, of you know, again, you were talking about a healthy religion versus unhealthy and in Einstein's language. And by the way, in terms of that, that quantum entanglement before i think that term was coined einstein actually called it spooky dynamic at a distance uh which i just love that spooky dynamic at a distance because it was just like this is crazy this doesn't make sense they're communicating faster than the speed of light you know w- w- you know what's unfolding here but you know einstein said that true religion is about healing the delusion of separation um and that's and and religion of course we know it's it's that latin root of re the ligare, the Latin root ligare is where we get our word ligament, the connection point. and that true religion is always about reconnecting what's been disconnected, right? remembering what's been dismembered. And I think unhealthy religion is always about unfortunately creating divisions and separations. Far from ligament, we're ripping apart. Um, and, and so it's always about that authentic connection. So to me, th- that's one big reason why I out of pocket reject any fear-based system. If someone proposes to me any fear-based system, I reject it out of pocket because it is incongruent with what I believe is the nature of reality and what is truly healthy. I think the ego creates what separates and, and, and truth, spirituality, Christocentric sanity is always about connecting. It is always about growing our awareness of our already existing connection with God, with one another, ourselves, and all of creation. And truth is truth is truth. And if that comes through uh, the Dalai Lama or Thich Nhat Hanh or Frederick Nietzsche or quantum physics or biology, whatever the f- sources, is, we get to embrace it with arms wide open and like kids splashing in a pool, have a blast with it um, fearlessly because we're not trying to defend a brick fortress, that we get to flow down the river. And sometimes it's white water and sometimes it is it is eddies where we just get to chill but whatever it is, it's this adventure that is constantly flowing. And our job is not to try to put it into a teacup and a construct that we get control of, but our job is to ride the river and invite others to the dance.
0: Yeah, dude, I absolutely love it. And I, I get excited to you. So you've brought up a lot of Bible stuff. And so I feel like I've done a poor job of quoting Bible stuff. Yeah, I was going to, I was going to so say, you've
1: is- really done a poor job of quoting the Bible today, Josh, you really need to step up your, uh, your Bible quoting game. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true.
0: That's what Jace. That's what my friend Jace would always tell me. I still oh, need you to meet. Jace. I'm horrible. I, I think you would yeah. love Jace. I need to connect you two. Uh, But here, Jace, this is for you, my friend. I'm going to do some Bible stuff for you. Um, it, like, if if you're honest and you read the four Gospels, right, uh, they don't line up at all. Like Jesus dies on different days in the Gospels. Hmm. There's things that happen in some Gospels that other Gospels don't even talk about. Right. Right. Um, and so. I think it's important then to see, because I think that's for a reason. I'm not disparaging the Bible when I say that. I think that that's important. And I think then what makes something even more important is when there's something that is said or done by Jesus in all four gospels. One of those things is this. In Matthew 10, 40, it says, anyone who welcomes you, this is Jesus speaking. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who has sent me. And so Jesus is like setting up this, like this, this crazy Richard Rohr calls it like a chain of being, right? Uh, Where Jesus is saying that there's like, Rohr says there's like a moral equivalence between you, yourself, your neighbor, the Christ and God. And so this idea of interconnectedness and then what's crazy is that's Matthew 1040. You can find it in Mark 937, Luke 1016 and John 1320. And so this idea of inner being and interconnectedness, what Jesus is saying is, what you do to, to your neighbor, you do to me. What you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. What you do unto me, you do unto the Father. What you do unto yourself, you do unto your neighbor and and to God. Like, it's all there. It's mm-hmm. it's all this, this the, the inner being, the interconnectedness. And it can be found within our Christian tradition as well. Um but because we haven't had the eyes to see because you know we've we've taken our idea of Jesus and made it into this like separatist exclusionary thing rather than this like inclusive uh reality it 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 takes the power away and it kills it and then also um as you were talking about Phil Shepherd and and the trees um it reminded me and this goes within or being bit, but it reminded me of this thing that <laughs> uh, I read from Thich Nhat Han as well, where he said, uh, before I meditated, I saw the mountain was a mountain. During meditation, I saw that the mountain was not a mountain. And after meditation, I could see that the mountain truly was a mountain. <laughs> so it sounds really confusing, but what he's getting at is that, um, if I I'll make it simpler, when I hold up a piece of bread that I'm about to eat, if I look deeply at this piece of bread, I will see that this bread is made up of non bread elements, right? Mm. And I can see, if I look deeply, I can see within this piece of bread, I can see the sunlight that you know sh- shined on the wheat, and mm. and the rain that fell to nourish the wheat, and I can see the farmer that that mm. grew and cultivated the wheat, and then I can see, you know. If you look deeply, you see all of it. Yeah. But that's true about everything, including you and me. Mm-hmm. We are you are Greg and I am Josh, but at the same time, I'm not Josh and you're not Greg. We're made mm-hmm. up of non-Josh elements in the same way that you're made up of non-Greg elements. But that's exactly yeah. what makes us Josh and Greg. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that is fantastic.
1: <laughs> I, I think yeah, it, it is. It's incredibly liberating, and and I think when we experience, when we hear that level of teaching, that's so resonant. And magnetic it reminds me you know th- there were times i actually reached a point you know I, again i grew up in asia and I had a deep resonance with buddhism uh, and i'm now you know an episcopal priest but there was a time where i was wrestling with i there's there, there's so many you know it's almost like at times buddhism had like the the gravitational pull of a solar where i i just was like i almost feel more drawn there to find my nourishment than my christian home and should i become a buddhist uh and I was reminded of Thomas Merton, uh, the, the Trappist monk and author, famous author. And, and And Merton was contemplating the same thing. He was being so drawn to Buddhism that he was thinking about uh, leaving his Christian tradition and becoming a Buddhist. And he ran into—I forget the particular—the name of the particular uh, uh, practitioner and and master that he spoke to. Um, but the the master said, "You know, d- don't leave. Don't leave your." your home base don't leave your tradition it's deeply embedded in your and everything you long for out here is already in your tradition you just need to go and find it um, and that's what merton did and that's what thomas keating has done and that's what bourgeot has done and, and richard Rohr has done is that again they they've they've gone back and discovered oh my gosh everything that we long for that we see over there that we're kind of jealous of uh or are drawn to it's right here in our own tradition um. So, and, and that to me is a passion of second breath that we want to create spaces for people to discover. And I, I can't tell you how many times we people said, this is Christianity. I, like, and then they'll, they'll say to me, I can actually call myself a Christian again. Like they left the church and I'd say, this this is actually I can actually call myself a, a Christian again because it is all here in our tradition. We just need to take the time to to, to mind the beauty because it's just there. or it's like that I said earlier, it's like that that trunk in the attic that's been there the whole time. We just didn't know it was there. And we begin to find it, then we can just we celebrate and 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 we can also celebrate what Thich Nhat Han says, and we can celebrate the the truth when when he wasn't frothingly angry what Nietzsche said. That we can we can embrace and find all this beauty all around, um, but we don't have to leave our own tradition. We can celebrate what what where we come from and, and what's in our DNA.
0: Yeah. I want to comment on that briefly, and then I have I want to ask you a question, and then we'll we can uh shut things down because I could keep talking all day and I have all the time <laughs> in the world, but I also know that uh, asking listeners to listen to a four-hour conversation is not always the easiest thing to do. Um <laughs> But uh, we'll just have to have you back, Greg. That's just how it works.
1: That sounds fun, man. This is always fun.
0: So my comment is, as you were speaking, it reminded me, I want to say I heard John Philip Newell talking about this. Um, and he was talking about a, another similar situation where like someone was contemplating leaving, you know, whatever faith tradition they were to become another faith tradition. And the teacher was like, no, like, I, that's not what I want. And I think... Um, like I just want you to be, let's say Christian for example. I just want you to be the very best version of of Christian that that you can be. Um, and I think Gandhi picked up on that too. And then I know Thich Nhat Hanh has talked about it, where it's like. And then I, I said this in a Bible study recently, and I got like pushed back really quick. But I was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not convinced that like my job is to go around and tell Han that he has to become a Christian, because I think he is doing tremendous good as a Zen master Buddhist. Right. And the fruits of his work are huge. He's a Nobel peace, you know, peace prize winner. He he, mm. like helped with bring peace and lead the peace movement during the, the civil war. He's walked alongside Martin Luther King jr in America, a country he's not even from during the civil rights movement. When all the Christians were saying, fuck Martin Luther King jr.
1: Mm. Like,
0: TikNot Han is interacting with what I call the Christ. Mm-hmm. He might call it the Buddha, some people might call it the Tao, some people mm-hmm. might call it spirit, whatever it is they're interacting with. And so I'm more so becoming, uh, I guess this word has some baggage, but perennial in my understanding, mm-hmm. where it's like, I want TikNot Han to be the best Zen Buddhist that he can be, and I want my Muslim neighbors to be the best Muslims Mm -hmm. that they can be. Um, And I don't feel this need or desire to to change them in any way. Not because somehow I'm cruel. And I have this idea of Jesus who can save them from hell. And if I don't give them Jesus, then they're screwed. But it's because I think my eyes have been opened a little bit. and I can see like, well, wait a minute, maybe I don't know everything. Mm. Maybe these people are interacting with the God that I call Yahweh and mm. they're doing it in the way that that God is calling them to so th- that's that's one thing but the that leads to a question and I've I've been asking this of myself recently um I'm actually I'm excited I booked Brian McLaren to talk about this again he has a new book coming out called still Christian question or do I stay Christian is what it's called mm. um and I I had a conversation with Dan Koch and um Matt from, uh, Emory about this. Cause I find myself asking the same question. Like, what is it that makes me a Christian? Why, why am I a Christian? Am I a Christian? And so I want to ask you, Greg, if it's not too much, uh,
1: why are you still a Christian? Are you a Christian? Yeah. Great, great question. Yeah. I think, I think it was, uh, for, for a while, uh, Rob Bell talked about this in a recent interview I read, uh, where for a while he would qualify that and say, well, I'm not, I'm not like a, a MAGA hat wearing Trump Christian, you know, I am. And, and then he said, he said, he realized now, you know, forget that, you know, I'm a Christian and I'm not going to allow particular communities that I might disagree with to take that name. Uh, and, and that I have to uh, change my whole orientation based on them that he said, I am a Christian. And so for me, I absolutely am a Christian that I follow God in the path of Jesus, that Jesus is my Savior, my North Star, my Guru. Uh, he is the one that I look to to define my trajectory, first and foremost. Um, and of course, we could unpack what Savior means and Guru means and North Star means, uh, but absolutely, I would define myself as a Christian. And uh, you know, I, I, I know that there are people, particularly in my old communities, that would say I'm not anymore. Uh, they would definitely say that I've left the fold and I'm going to hell, because i no longer hold to the, the 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 newest iteration of what people believe the gospel is uh and and that's okay because i i i know that even when they interact with me that their that their earnest heart is 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 deep down underneath they're approaching me out of love uh, that 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 really is there but i absolutely believe that i'm a christian for a long time i had a criteria a, a, a set of doctrine by which i would determine what that is i've jettisoned that uh and 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 maybe this is i'm I'm, this is not a commercial for the episcopal church whatsoever but one thing i do appreciate about the episcopal church is they call themselves the people of the book and by the book they don't mean the bible they mean the book of common prayer and what they mean is that they're they're that that we don't have a litmus test for who's in and who's out but we're committed to creating a transcendent worship environment through prayer and worship for people to meet god in the way that they that that god wants to meet them um and there's lots of the foibles within the Episcopal church, but that's one aspect I really appreciate. So to me, I've got no business defining who is in and who's out. I've got no business telling someone else if they're a Christian or not. And I'm even bored by the conversation. I don't even understand. Like to me, to me, it's a like, uh, what, what I'm trying to do is walk out my journey with all the authenticity and heart that I can to love people and myself the best I can for me Uh, that's embodied most poignantly in in Jesus of Nazareth, Um, and I want to follow in his footsteps, and all of the beauty that has evolved in our doctrine of the Trinity or the, the gorgeousness of the Incarnation. And all of the mystery surrounding that. So I love that. And in that same way, I'm also going to celebrate when I experience truth found in Sufi Islam or in Buddhism or Judaism or in secular humanism. Uh, Truth is truth is truth. And and I get to uh, open, like I said earlier, open my arms wide to all of it fearlessly. So yes, I'm a Christian. Uh, And I I love to live. And and that to me is an invitation for wide open embrace and not uh, hiding in a brick fortress.
0: Yeah, that's really good, Greg. Thank you. Um, I resonate a lot with with a lot of that very deeply. And um, I mean, it just uh, we can wrap up with this. I uh, recently was asked uh, by a friend of mine who is very conservative uh evangelical christian they're actually like uh i don't even know what to call them they're not a pastor i guess they call themselves like an evangelist like they go out and like do revivals and shit and um they asked me my opinion on like what what is christian discipleship missing and i i had to think about it for a little bit but it it came pretty quickly i just i think christian discipleship often in my experience um and even this was my own understanding I remember saying this kind of stuff and and believing it not you know not even two years ago um that discipleship was just about giving people the right ideas and if we taught them the right ideas about who jesus is and if they understood the gospel clearly and knew it and they had the right one um the right beliefs then everything would be fine uh but that failed me um deeply and it's actually been experiential knowledge of the divine uh that has has held me in the fold, so to speak. Right. Mm. Uh, the reason that I still cling to the idea that I'm a Christian is because of the experiential knowledge that I have uh, of the God who I believe was revealed perfectly in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And because mm. of that, that's why I'm still a Christian. And uh, Richard Rohr, uh, when I was, I was reading this book and I've been quoting him a lot, but I've been reading the the divine dance um, mm-hmm. again recently and he has this little paragraph tucked away in there, and he says, "Do you ever wonder why Western atheism is on the rise? Why does the Christian West, by far, produce the highest number of atheists?" With if, which, straight up, that's just true, right? This whole deconstruction movement, this mass exodus, all of this kind of stuff is is blatantly true. Uh, go look at Barna, any of these groups. Sure. Western Christianity is on a decline, and he wrote this. In 2016 2017 i think um but he says what i believe and have dedicated my life to reversing is that we have not moved doctrine and dogma to the level of inner experience Mm -hmm. as long as received teaching doesn't become experiential knowledge we're going to continue creating a high quantity of disillusioned ex-believers or on the flip side will manufacture very rigid believers who simply hold on to doctrines in very dry, dead ways with nothing going on inside. Mm. And I think if you were to ask a lot of people why they're not a Christian anymore, yeah. they yeah. would say something like that. Yep. Um, so I think, who was it that said uh, the Christians of the future, if they still exist? Will be mystics,
1: <laughs> yeah, or
0: nothing, <laughs> or, or nothing, yeah. Which it all mystic yeah. means is is it just talks about experience, experiential knowledge. Yeah. One who uses experiential knowledge rather than just uh, like book knowledge, basically. Yeah. So
1: yeah, we've shifted from intellectual systems of belief to actual inner experience. That's the invitation.
0: Yeah, and I think too that uh, for myself, like that's what Second Breath has helped uh, helped me with so much as well. Mm. I'm um, actually, I meant to tell you, I found uh, a new meditation of your guys's that I really like. Um, I think it's I forget what it's called, but it's like I did it once and then I just it stuck with me. So I can just do it by myself now. Um, yeah. but it's uh it's the head, heart, and body one where uh you do the mindful breathing and then it sounds weird, listener, so forgive me, but it's awesome. Try it. And when you breathe in, you like expand your arms oh, and yeah. like welcome. Uh, welcome that breath. And then like you come back and when you breathe out, you start and you touch your head and you do that a number of times. And then you move and you do that with your heart and with uh, like just beneath your belly button. Um, and that's been really awesome. I uh, I start by doing like mindful breathing. I steal take not Hans saying of, you know, breathing in. I know I'm breathing in, breathing out. I know I'm breathing out. And I do that with my hands on my stomach and, and really try to focus on my breath. Um, and then once I get to a place where I'm able to actually be just here in the present moment focused on my breath i'll do the the head the heart and the I'm body Right now. on, man. i really enjoy that yeah
1: good good yeah it's all about embodied spirituality it's about yeah. how do we drop the coins down into our hearts and our bodies where there's real transformation instead of just uh intellectual ascent
0: yeah straight up sweet well greg as always uh this was super fun dude um I still think that it'd be a good idea to hit up our phone carriers and and steal any phone conversations we've had and just release them as podcast episodes (laughs) because we have conversations like this all the time.
1: Yeah, we do. Um, Yeah. but it's great to be with you again, man. It's always a joy. So thanks for having me on again.
0: Yeah, most definitely. And listeners, uh, for sure, go check out uh, Second Breath. Um, I'll post a a link to to the website there for you, Greg, in the the, uh, show notes. But also the Second Breath app, guys, is fantastic. Um, if you're interested in trying, like you haven't really done any kind of like spiritual practice or anything like that before, uh, the Second Breath app is such a great way, whether you've like never done it or you've been doing it for a million years, um, there's something there for you and it's, it's deeply helpful. So be sure to go check those things out. And uh, I guess until next time, friends, uh, go in peace and know that you are loved.